Welcome to the study of God's Word, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, let's open our Bibles and study God's Word. And if you have your Bibles, I want you to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I told Matt that we would start a little bit later in 17, but I actually want to start earlier on in verse 10. And so as we begin tonight, as we start to look at the passage that God has laid out for us, I want you to take just a minute, and I want you to think back on the course of your life, and I want to think back to where you were the moment that Jesus found you. What did your moment, what did your life look like? Uh, How did you process? How did you think? How did you feel? Uh, Jesus showed up and Jesus changed everything. Uh, In one minute, when he collided with your world, it kind of wrecked everything. It just changed everything that you thought about everything. And um, it was a sweet moment. I know, at least for me, uh, as a kid, I can remember that I was young, but there was a marked difference uh, for me, just in recognizing that the presence of the Lord Uh, was with me, that I was clean. And so I remember from that moment on being uh, really, really excited and uh, just expectant. You know, everywhere I went, I expected for God to be there. I expected for God to be a part of conversations. I expected for God to be a part of moments uh, that were happening. You know, we would go to church and uh, I expected for God to move, for God to do something. You know, why would you go to his house and not expect for him to be there? You know, you expect for the Lord to move, to convict you, to speak to you, to impress on you. And in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus is talking, uh, he speaks this a little bit, and he says, you know, there's a blessing. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, because they're going to be filled. And that's a promise. That is something that the Lord does. And so as we come into the house of God, as we come to receive the word, we're expectant. We come with a certain level, hopefully, of desperation to see God meet us, to refill us, to replenish us during the week. And desperation is a good thing. It invites the moving of the Holy Spirit because we're admitting that we need God to move on our behalf. We need him to move in our life. So tonight... um, If you're here and you've been a part of the church for any length of time, you've heard about the gospel. Uh, But if you are new and you are not really sure uh, about the church or exactly what goes on here, um, I want to take a moment to just define the gospel and what we're talking about. So uh, mankind began a relationship with the Lord that was pure. It was beautiful. God had set things as he had intended them to be. And then uh, man decided that he had uh, just a desire to have a deeper knowledge, that he wanted to control things. And so he sent against God and decided to strike out on his own and decided that he was going to take the bait of the enemy and he was going to seek after the knowledge of good and evil. So in Genesis chapter 3, what ends up happening is mankind falls into sin. Mankind uh, comes in line with the enemy's way of thinking. And part of what that looked like was that God was holding back from them. 
that they needed to have access to a deeper knowledge. There was something else that they just, they couldn't see. And so at that moment, it set into motion uh, the decay of humanity. But it also set into motion a plan that God had to redeem his people, to rescue them, to bring them back from the brink of destruction. And so when Jesus comes, the Lord had sent him to walk among us, and Jesus is God. And Jesus lived his life among us up until he was about 33. And so what ended up happening was that Jesus lived a life that was perfect. There was no sin in his life. He was tempted in many ways, but he never surrendered. He never gave in. And so what ends up happening is Jesus is provoking those who have a relationship with sin, those who love their sin. And he's also provoking those who hate their sin, who want freedom from it, who want an escape, who want an exit out of the life that they're stuck, they're stuck in, they're in bondage. And so Jesus ends up living his life, living out prophecy. Now the Jewish people had been expecting for Messiah to come, that he was going to come and he was going to be God in the flesh and he was gonna rise up Israel. And they thought culturally he was going to establish a kingdom where they were going to overthrow Romans. They were going to kill the Romans. They were going to push out the occupiers. And they were going to build a very physical, very temporal kingdom. But that's not what Jesus had. Jesus came and he lived his life as a carpenter. Jesus ended up uh, taking on disciples, men that followed him, that walked with him. And then there were women that followed Jesus too. And so as people began to follow Jesus, you know, it raised, um, raised some questions. Like, Jesus, you're not picking people that are uh, necessarily, like, top-notch. You know, you're, you're, uh, <clears throat> you're letting some people in that... Uh, Maybe, you know, you should be a little bit choosy with, more choosy, you know. But Jesus knew what he was doing, and he invited these people to come and to walk with him. And Jesus ends up dying on the cross. And Jesus dies, and he was the only one who lived a perfect life, and he died for our sin. Now, when people heard this within the culture, uh, it was scandalous. How could you say that you're God? And you come and you live your life. You were born in a manger and you live your life as a carpenter and you work with common people and then you die. And so what ends up happening is Jesus dies and he's raised from the dead after three days because he took the power of death. He took the power of sin and Jesus covered it under his sacrifice, under his blood. And so I want to encourage you that that's a definition of the gospel that we're working with. The gospel is power. The gospel is not just a concept for your mind, for your head, but it's something that moves us. It's the very power of life. It, it crosses us when we accept relationship with Jesus. We ask him to forgive us of our sins. We cross from death into life. We switch sides. And this is really important for where we're going because unless we study God's word in a way that's ultimately going to affect our actions, we study it fruitlessly. 
We don't study it in a way that's going to change us and shift us. And sometimes we come to the Lord and we, we say, all right, Lord, I'm, I'm thankful for what you've done. And we start to walk with the Lord for a little bit. And we start to get down the road just a bit in our faith. And what happens is we start to lose our perspective. And sometimes we start to see Jesus and Jesus' mission, the kingdom, as we are instead of as he is. And this is where culture bleeds into our faith. And this can cause some very, very real misunderstandings about who God is, about what his mission is. And that was a little bit of what happened with the people that were following him and were scandalized by the way that God had chosen to bring about their freedom, the way that God had chosen to move on our behalf and set us free. And so I want you to write down, if you're taking notes, what does faithfulness to this Jesus, to Jesus, our Lord, look like for you? A lot of us have different answers. A lot of us think through um, different ways that we can do ministry or different ways that we can serve. Uh, But I would wonder if you have on your list a willingness to lay down your reputation. That's a hard one. Is it included in your list of what it takes to be faithful to the Lord, a willingness to be foolish as far as the culture is concerned? And this is really, really important because a lot of us today in America, I think a lot of um, believers as a whole, are largely uh, stagnant in their faith. I think there's a spiritual complacency, a spiritual boredom that has set into a lot of the church because they're not exercising their faith. And so I want to encourage you tonight that when Jesus came, he didn't just come to get us out of hell free. He didn't just come to do uh, a a minor work, a moment. He came to do an ongoing process in your life so that you being rescued might become a rescuer for those around you. So if you guys are with me, Let's pick up 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. And so there's a little bit of context going on. The Apostle Paul is in the city of Corinth, and he had just come from Athens. And so he's been arguing with Greek philosophers, and uh, he spent a couple of days there just doing some really high-level mental gymnastics as he's uh, explaining the gospel to these guys. And now he comes to Corinth, which is a city that is just... um, It's a seedy place, not a good place, not a great place. There's a lot of uh, paganism. Uh, They treasure uh, just their sin. They treasure the way that they look at things. And so the Apostle Paul has come here, and he'll be here for a year and a half. And it's a church that is struggling with division. And so if you guys will read with me, starting in verse 10, in the NLT I'm reading, it says, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. For some members of Chloe's household have told me about your quarrels, my dear brothers and sisters. Some of you are saying, uh, I'm a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I will only follow Christ. Has Jesus been divided into factions? Was I, Paul, crucified for you? Were any of you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, 
For now, no one can say they were baptized in my name. Oh yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas, but I don't remember baptizing anyone else. And so it's interesting, what early church, early on, what they're already wrestling with is they have celebrities, different people in the pulpit, different people that they gravitate towards, maybe a style, uh, maybe a direction, somebody that they just like, uh, maybe their personality. I don't know exactly how that played out, but uh, there's different people that are rising. And so the church is starting to divide out and be like, hey, you know, um, this guy, he's really good. You should follow him. And then somebody else says, no, no, my guy's better. I really like how he clears his throat and how he, how he says his words, you know, or whatever the, the silliness is. And so people are beginning to divide out. They're beginning to split out. And, you know, we can see a lot of this uh, struggle ongoing today. You know, nothing new is under the sun. We see that there are tens of thousands of associations, denominations within our country that make up uh, the fabric of our faith and people that are part of our family. And um, it's really interesting. You know, today, uh, to date, the church is better educated, better financed, and has more access to humanity via technology than at any point ever in the history of mankind. And a lot of the surveys say that we're in decline. Church is in decline. Why? Is it division? Is it a need for holy boldness? Is it a need to recognize the presence of God? To make sure that we're heart-checking ourselves? To make sure that we understand that we are preaching Jesus? We're not preaching for a different team. We're not preaching for these guys. Those guys, we're preaching for Jesus. And so Jesus always encourages his followers, you know, you need to count the cost. And so Jesus always pressed against people's traditional and cultural lenses. And he said, you need to take on a biblical perspective, a biblical lens, or you're going to miss it. You won't understand what I'm here to do. So what ends up happening is it, it goes on, the Apostle Paul goes on in verse 17, and he says, For Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the good news, and not with clever speech, for fear that the cross of Christ would lose its power. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. God came to capture your heart. God didn't come uh, because he needs something from you. God doesn't need anything from you. He wants your heart. He wants your life. He knows why he made you. He knows why he purposed you. Our identity as believers lies in God. Man didn't dream us up. Man didn't create us. God did. God has a purpose for us. If you're taking notes, I want to encourage you to write this down. The gospel does not need our empowerment. The gospel needs our surrender. We surrender one time in our life as believers. We surrender to Jesus. And Jesus is the only one we surrender to. And then we stop surrendering to fear of man. We stop surrendering to division. We stop surrendering to our flesh. And we start following Jesus. And following Jesus doesn't mean that we advise him or that we tell him what to do. It means that we come underneath him. It means that we obey him, that we submit to the direction that he has. 
The founder of the Salvation Army, his name was William Booth, and he had a great thought on surrender. And he just said, the greatness of a man's power lies in the measure of his surrender. You know, sometimes we come to the Lord and we start to think um, we're good. You know, he did his work. We're good. Let's coast. From here on out, we're just going to write it out. And the Lord couldn't be more opposed to that notion. So if that's you, I want to let you know Jesus is coming for you. He's not going to allow you to just coast. That is not why Jesus saved you. That is not what he has for you. So sometimes what happens is as we coast, we start to lose sight of the vision. We start to lose sight of the mission. And we subtly uncouple Jesus from the call that he gives us. And what ends up happening at that point is we find ourselves sharing a gospel that we're no longer promoting with our lives. And it's very, very sad because we're putting out a gospel that we feel like now needs our help. You know, it needs us to uh, tame it a little bit, maybe to not challenge us so much. It needs uh, a little bit of help from us, maybe a little bit of empowerment. And so the temptation can be for churches or for people in general, followers of Jesus, to tinker with it, to mess around with the compass, you know. And as we start to do that and as we play around with it, what ends up happening is we end up wandering because we have a messed up compass, We start mixing and matching what Jesus has said and what Jesus has for us and the direction that he's laid out for us, and we find ourselves messed up. And so when we surrender to the gospel, we understand that we're surrendering to a king that is worthy. We're surrendering to a king that has our life. He has our allegiance. He has everything about us. Sometimes, as Americans living in a democracy, this can be tough for us culturally to understand because we're used to having a vote. We're used to having a say. And in the power of a kingdom, the power doesn't lie in having your vote. The power lies in the strength of your king. It lies in Almighty God for believers. So what happens is Paul's come to Corinth and he's coming and he's just saying, you know, I refuse to use clever speech in the gospel. The gospel needs to be accessible It needs to be plain. People need to understand what they're responding to or not responding to because it's very important that we understand that we don't play with the gospel. We don't tinker it. We don't mess with it. We don't clean up the gospel to make it more palatable to people within the culture. The gospel cleans us when we come to the gospel. We come to Jesus. We don't make the gospel relevant. The gospel makes us relevant. It makes the church relevant. And so when you think back, you know, and um, back to our conversation earlier about where the church is at today, something really strategic ended up happening in the 1960s. And so obviously there was a lot of upheaval going on. Um, I wasn't around for it, but I've heard about it. I've read about it. Um, And so what ends up happening is there's a lot going on. The sexual revolution, uh, there's a lot of wars going on. There's fear of nuclear war. There's uh, the rise of the Soviet Union. All kinds of things are happening culturally, and all kinds of fears are on the horizon. And the church in our country uh, made somewhat of a subtle shift in our approach to the culture. 
And somewhere we made a detour, we made a change from we went from proclaiming the gospel as a whole to defending the gospel. And what happened was we began to circle the wagons and we began to look at the culture as somewhere that just wasn't safe to go to. It wasn't a place where the church needed to just get too deeply involved because the the culture was so far gone. And so we ended up protecting and defending ourselves, and the church made a turn inward. And that was a huge mistake, in my opinion, because we were afraid of what might happen. And so when Paul comes here and he's sharing what he's doing, what he's really saying is, you know, in verse 18, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed to destruction. He's saying that, you know, people who are on the outside who don't have a living witness, who don't have somebody who can explain what's going on clearly and plainly, uh, don't get it. They don't understand. What is the gospel about? Why did Jesus do things the way he did? I don't know. They're, they're kind of at a loss, you know. And Paul says, I didn't want to tinker with it because I was afraid in verse 17 um, that the cross of Christ would lose its power. You read that and you think, well, Paul, what are you talking about? You know, how could the cross of Jesus lose its power? But what he's saying is that it's possible to present the gospel in a way that sucks the life right out of it. You present the gospel in a way that uh, doesn't let people see the freedom and the power that's there. We might present the gospel in a way where we want to fight with them. We might present the gospel in a way where we're coming against them and we forget where we've come from. The moment we talked about at the beginning of this message, when did Jesus find you? You have to remember, none of us are better than anyone else. We all had a start. We all started somewhere. Jesus came into your life. It wasn't like your sin was so much better than somebody else's. It wasn't like it did that much more to bring you to Jesus. You needed the power of the cross. And so when you can have the right message, but you do it in the wrong way, it can still come across as the wrong message, right? And so Paul wanted to be sure that when we preach the gospel, we're preaching it in a way that's accessible to people, that people feel like and understand it's for them. This gospel is for you. And so, Paul says, look, it's foolish to people that are dying because essentially people on the outside who have no understanding of God see somebody who was tried as a criminal, even though it was a bad trial, and hung on a cross, and so had capital punishment, capital execution. And so they look at it, and they're not able to see with spiritual eyes. And they look at that, and they think, you're asking me to trust my life to somebody who was on death row because they're limited by their perception of life. They're limited by their understanding. But to those that are seeking the Lord, to those that God is opening their eyes, he's opening their appetite, he's opening their understanding that they're like, yeah, my life is a hot mess. It's not that great. I want out. Give me options. Jesus, come and reach me. Come and help me because all I have to offer is brokenness. I don't have a lot of beautiful things in my life. And Jesus comes and he sees that and he says, there's saving power for you. There's hope for you. 
If we ever present anything in relationship to Jesus without hope, we're presenting it wrong. Because Jesus came to bring hope. Jesus came to bring an invitation for you to come out of your sin and to walk with him. So the gospel message is that, really, you can't come clean. Nobody does. Everyone comes dirty. There's no other way to come. How can you come clean without Jesus? And so, if you're taking notes, I want to encourage you to write this down. God opposes the wisdom of man. God hates when we stand in the way of the gospel going forward. Whether it's by going or not going, it grieves the Lord's heart as a father. That we would share or not share with somebody based on different things because what we're really doing is positioning ourselves uh, with who we think would receive grace and who wouldn't receive grace. And so the wisdom of man just says, you know what, this is, this is silliness. This is like, I can't, I can't grasp this. Why would God do that in this way? Why would God do that for all these people? And so we'll pick up in verse 19. And it says, as the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's most brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven. It is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended. The Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those who called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest human strength. You know, um, a lot of times what God will do is God will purposefully set things up in your life that will challenge you. God will put things across your path. You know, John Wimber said that God will offend your mind to reveal your heart. God will put you in a situation where you have to figure out what you're going to do <clears throat> and how you're going to move forward. And so a lot of times people that struggle uh, with the simplicity of the gospel are people who are used to very high-level thinking, used to high-level ways of doing things, used to, um, you know, they, they complicate it. They make it difficult. They struggle to accept what the Lord is doing. And so they think it should be this, it should be that. And it says in verse 20, God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. God in his wisdom saw to it the world would never know him through human wisdom. God didn't want to do things in a way where mankind could ever take credit for their salvation where they could think through, you know, to a, a certain position or a certain place where they could justify themselves and be in a place where they're like, yeah, you know, like, I, I feel really good about this. Like, it makes sense. God is in this, in this uh, box. He's in a set of parameters that I like because it gives me some level of control. 
But God doesn't do that. God does things however he wants to do them. And so God uses foolish people. God uses people who are willing to go out and lay down their reputations to see the gospel move forward. And so it says it's foolishness to the Jews because, like we talked about earlier, the Jews were waiting for a sign. They were waiting for a Messiah. They were waiting for the guy who is going to step up and overthrow the Romans, right? And so they're waiting, and they're waiting, and they're waiting, and they don't see it yet, and they're waiting, and they're waiting. And the Greeks, they have a different problem. It says it's foolish to the Greeks because they seek human wisdom. And so the Greeks are not waiting for anything supernatural. They're just struggling to logically work through why would God make himself uh, vulnerable? Why would God come to us? Why would God put himself in a position where he is being executed? Because they don't get it. It doesn't make sense to them. It doesn't compute. A lot of times when we look at our culture, we see a culture that has a lot of objections to the gospel. There's a lot of things they don't understand. There's a lot of things they want to know. Some people will press in and they'll ask more, and some people won't. They'll just quietly reject it. They won't say much about it. They won't engage in conversation. They feel like, you know what? Uh, If God was powerful, if God was good, then he would do things this way. God would do things my way, maybe, is what we think. And God will allow things to happen in our life, and we'll sit there, and we'll watch it happen, and it'll play out. And we'll just think, like, God, this isn't how it's supposed to go. Like, don't you know? Like, uh, you know, sometimes we start to think, like, God, you're, you're doing it wrong. Uh, my story doesn't go like that. My story goes like this. My story should do this. And then if we're not careful, we start to think, you know, uh, if I was in charge, this is how I would do it. I would do it this way. I would lay out things this way because it's comfortable to me, because it's within my box. It's within my way of computing and processing. And it's super interesting just looking at the generation that we live in today. Um, A lot of our culture has heard Christianity, at least in some cultural form, uh, to the point to where a lot of people are just inoculated to it. People are not waiting for a new definition of Christianity, for a church that's more relevant, for a church that can clean up the gospel, speak it in a better term, uh, a church that can hit different things like that. What they're waiting for is a demonstration. They're waiting for an illustration of the gospel. Yes, we've heard about it, but does it do anything? Does it change anything? Is there anything there that I can grab onto? And so a lot of people in the, in the generation that we live in currently want to know that God is not just relegated to empty museum churches in the West, that God is not relegated to folklore, past generations, or stained glass windows, but that God is here today. God wants to touch me. God wants to move in my life. God wants to do something powerful. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, it says, Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. 
you know how we lived among you for your sake. And so we want to be careful with like Paul is saying here, and he's, he's preaching to the different ones, and different ones are, are missing it because they're not looking for who God is. They're looking for who their version of God is. And so they start to miss what he's doing. And so Isaiah 29, 14 is quoted here, and it says, it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I'll discard the intelligence of the intelligent. Some people, they come, they want to receive. Some people want to argue. Some people want to fight. Some people want to dispute. Some people want to um, push God away because spiritual truths are spiritually discerned, and they don't have that. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, it says, The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. So God's wisdom is not our wisdom. God's wisdom is not man's wisdom or man's thinking or man's logic multiplied times 100. It's not us at our best, us thinking at our highest levels. God does things in his own way. And God tells us, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. How I do things are not the way that you do things. And some of us are like, great, I can accept that because I don't have that great of thoughts. And other people really, really struggle with that. Like, why doesn't God consult me and what he's doing? I would like like to have a part of that. But in verse 21, it says that it pleased God, it pleases God to do things in his own way. We have to think about that, you know, because, you know, sometimes we can get trapped in our expectations. You know, each of us has a different background. Each of us has different experiences. We come from different family cultures. We have different uh, stories of churches we grew up in, different places maybe we've come. Maybe you didn't grow up in the church. You don't know, you know. And so sometimes what we can do is we can begin to limit God by our experiences, Instead, we just need to let God be God and do the things that he wants to do. So I want to encourage you, if you're taking notes again, to write this thought down. We're not called because we're great. We're called because God is. You're not called because you have anything great to offer. We don't have secret wisdom. We don't have secret knowledge. We don't uh, need to walk around like God is lucky to have us. Um, (laughs) God came to us. God found us. God found us outside of grace. He found us outside of hope. He found us outside of life, and he made a way for us to have access to come in. Verse 26, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says, remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God shows the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think that they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God shows things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. 
As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has united you with Jesus Christ. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. You know, the early church, uh, they didn't have a lot of the hang-ups that we have in our comforts today. Uh, the early church, uh, they were being persecuted. They were hunted early on. Um, you know, people were taken, and they were tied to posts in Nero, who was the, the emperor of Rome's gardens, and they were burned alive while he walked through the garden. They were put into arenas where bears crushed them, lions ate them. They met in catacombs, among, among bodies, underground. They were hiding. And yet, what ended up happening was the early church was full of power. They were full of a dynamic because they didn't, they didn't ascribe what Jesus had done for them in their lives to something of their importance. They didn't have pedigree. They weren't rich. Some of them were. Most of them weren't. They weren't especially educated. There's inscriptions in the catacombs from the early church even today uh, where they have different writings that were in, inscribed on the walls. And you know what? A lot of the words were spelled wrong. They did the best they could. They weren't necessarily highly educated, but God chose them. God loved them. And you know what God used them to do? To bring the Roman Empire to its knees. Because the more believers that were killed, the more people saw those guys full of life, full of joy, full of hope, willing to serve a purpose greater than themselves, willing to stand and be counted. You know, I want to encourage us that um, every kind of half-hearted discipleship tends to start with three words. It tends to start with, yeah, Jesus, I know you're asking me to do this, uh, but, and then whatever the excuse is. You know, there's another word. Uh, we'll say, Jesus, I know you've asked me to do this, if. And then we'll put our stipulations on what God can do with our life. Sometimes Jesus flat out tells us something, and we say, okay, Jesus, I hear you. Or we could do this, and we completely disregard what Jesus wants us to do because we want to move in a different direction with our life. We want to take it somewhere else. And I want you guys to know that we're nothing special. We can't boast in anything other than Jesus going to the cross and dying a traumatic, horrific death. And he did that because he loves you and there's nothing you can do about it. Jesus came for you and he keeps coming for you, and he keeps inviting you to step up, to lay your reputation down. Don't let your reputation become your idol. Allow the Lord to do what he wants to do. If you want to follow Jesus, as long as you can be dignified, or as long as you can do it in the confines of what you love, or how you want to be used, then you're not a follower. You're following yourself. You're laying out the direction that you have set, 
that you have control over, that you want to use your giftings and your life in. And that's not what Jesus calls you to. Jesus calls you to follow. When we choose to follow Jesus, it's not just adding a different religious accessory to our life. It is the life-altering event. It is the crossroads that changes everything. And so when Jesus calls us, and Paul's writing, and he's saying, look, you guys weren't all that special. There's some debate as to whether or not the Corinthian church, as they'd been caught up in different factions and caught up in different groups and different things, began to forget where they came from. And they began to think more highly of themselves and think that God had chosen them because they were better than someone around them. Or God had chosen them because they were more special or they were more favored. But we know that the Bible tells us that God wills that none would perish, but that all would come to eternal life. Nobody is saved by their pedigree. We're saved by God's pedigree. We're saved by the the grace of a king who came and he chose who he wanted to choose. The church is laid out in scripture. We're called the bride of Christ. And Jesus can marry whoever he wants to marry. And a lot of us, when we consider who we're going to ally ourselves with, ally ourselves with, we look for people who are strong, people who offer some advantage to us, people who um, enhance our life in some way. And God doesn't worry about that. God calls the messy, God calls the dirty because he's not afraid of it. God doesn't hide away from people who are hungry for him, but God invites them to the table. God can ally himself with the weak because he's strong. We look for people that will invest in us. God looks for people to invest in. And when the kingdom rests in a church, and in a culture, what ends up happening is we stop being inwardly focused and we start being outwardly focused. We're willing to sacrifice. We're willing to take risks. We're willing to let the Lord have his way in our life and do the things that he wants to do. So once we're willing to surrender our dreams and our reputations in favor of his, then he can use us. You know, you think about Mary and Joseph, and you think about... Uh, Joseph in Genesis, you think about Moses, you think about Abraham, you think about a lot of the people that we hold as stalwarts of our faith, as people that we would go back to and we're like, yes, these people are awesome. And they all had moments in their life where they had to lay down their reputation. You think about Mary and Joseph, their reputations were wrecked. And you look at that and you think, man, God, why did you do that to people who were faithful? And God did that, and my wife actually pointed this out to me, but God did that because God wasn't short-sighted. God's not short-sighted with our lives. God wants to use us in powerful ways. In Acts chapter 4, when the disciples are seized, it says that they didn't have any special training. They were ordinary people, but they recognized that they had been with Jesus. It says that God chooses the low things to display his glory, right? People that are messed up, people that have issues, they don't enhance a king's power, but they can display it, right? We can be a host for the presence of the Lord and what he wants to do.
when Paul writes here that God came and he's choosing the low things, but the word in the original language is literally the things without a father, things that can't trace their descent. They're of no family, spiritual orphans that God adopts that God brings in. And he doesn't just adopt them and give them a family. He gives them a purpose and he gives them a place and he gives them resources and he sends us out to call other spiritual orphans into the family. And that is good news. That's good news. It is. It's a huge blessing. So I want you to think tonight as the worship team comes back up, but I want you to think Where is God calling you? Where is God challenging you in your life tonight? Are you worried about your reputation? Are you worried about your career? Are you worried about your comfort? You know, comfort can be a huge trap because we think that we create this zone that will keep us safe. And what ends up happening is it holds us hostage. And it doesn't allow for the freedom and the moving of the Spirit of God to have his way that God can spend your life in the way that he wants to spend it because he's a king and he's worthy. And I want to encourage us that tonight we're not going to talk about Jesus like he's not in the room. He's here. There's a king in the room right now. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verse 4 tells us where the word of a king is, there is power. And who can say to him, What are you doing? The kingdom of God is marked by simplicity. It's marked by sincerity. It's marked by a sense of urgency to bring others in, to not be selfish with the hope and the life that God has given to you. So Paul didn't try and come. He didn't try and be clever. He wasn't trying to mess around. He wasn't trying to make the gospel about him. Paul wanted there to be access for the culture, there would be access to people who are on the fringe, on the periphery, on the outside to come in. So I want to challenge you that tonight, if you don't know Jesus, and you're listening to what I'm talking about, and you think like, yeah, I would like to serve a king like that. I would like to have some kind of hope, some kind of reason to live, some kind of purpose to go on. But I feel hollow. And if you're a hollow person tonight, I want you to know you don't need a decoder ring for the gospel. You don't need a secret handshake. You don't need to know any kind of special words. Jesus just wants you. He wants you like you are. You can come as you are, and I will tell you, you're not allowed to stay that way. But you can come as you are, and Jesus will change you. And if you're afraid... Let your fear surrender to trust. Let the natural order of your life, the things that you value, let them come underneath the supernatural order of God's kingdom. So we're going to have pastors up here at the front as we finish. Henry's going to lead us in a song. But I want you to not just make a hype decision or an emotional decision. But if Jesus is challenging you in your life somewhere, Come with me to Jesus. Come with me. Come to the front. Make a decision. Make a stand. And I want to pray for you real quick, and then we'll begin the worship time.
But Jesus, we just pray for holy boldness in the church. We pray, Father, that we would be willing to make ourselves of no reputation, that we would count the cost and that we would see that you are worthy, Lord. I pray for anybody who's struggling tonight, who needs to be stirred in their faith, that you would just pour out your grace and your sweetness on them, Lord. We ask that you would inflame their love tonight. We pray, Father, that you would just breathe a freshness into their walk with you. We pray, Lord, if somebody needs to come with you for the first time to meet you, that they would just give you their sin and their brokenness, and they would ask you, Lord, to fill them for the first time with life, with hope. And Lord, we ask that in this church, in the churches in our city, Holy Spirit, that you would give us a holy craving for the people around us that are lost, and that we would invite them to life. We love you, Jesus. We thank you. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to do work with us right now. In your name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223 or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.